Hello and welcome to the IMB podcast brought to you by the Communications Office and Student Media Cell of IIM Bangalore. The new podcast series aims to become a platform to discuss the latest business, economic, management and social issues that matter. The podcast will witness IIM Bangalore fraternity including but not limited to the faculty members, students and alumni provide their insights and perspectives to the topics and issues that surround us. COVID-19 has had a massive impact on media supply, consumption and advertisement around the world. While the demand for new content has skyrocketed in the past few months, the distribution and delivery have mainly shifted to online channels. With COVID-19 disrupting businesses across the world, online advertisement spending by traditional players has also decreased massively, directly impacting the sustainability of advertising-based business models used by players in this industry. With the media industry already at a crossroads with increasing digitization, the COVID-19 pandemic has accelerated many forces in this dynamic industry. To understand this unique intersection of media and technology, we have with us Praveen Krishnan, a PGP 2011 alumnus of IIM Bangalore. After completing his MBA, Praveen worked as a product manager at Mintra and Inmobi. Currently, Praveen is the head of product at the Ken, which is a digital subscription-based publication based out of Bangalore. Welcome Praveen to the IMB podcast. It is a pleasure to have you here with us for this episode. Thank you Kushakra. Uh, I'm really glad to be here and thank you for inviting me. Praveen, the role of media has been evolving through centuries. Right from the start of print media to today, the consumption of news has changed drastically from purely offline to a blend of online and offline. At the start of your career in 2005, you worked as a journalist in the Economic Times. Today, you work as the head of product at the Ken. Over the years, what changes have you personally seen in the ways journalists cover stories, workings of the editorial room, delivery of news, and finally the consumption of news by viewers and readers? Yeah, this is a good question. Um, so before I say anything, I must like caveat this by saying that my initial experience uh, in two thousand five as a journalist uh, was not particularly uh, deep. so i wouldn't really go on to say that it's something that i had like spent a significant time or i was like really deep in the trenches uh in fact i was mostly in uh, what they call the city beat so this was part of the economic times in chennai uh, so at that time it was used they had the supplement called uh, madras plus which uh, they wanted some uh, reporters who was basically like going and covering city events and uh talking to some people maybe doing some interviews and things like that so it was all really benign stuff so i'm not going to pretend that uh i can i know a lot about uh, what was going on before and now but i'll give you some broad perspective so two three things uh come to mind so one of the things is that look the okay there are things that have been like broadly the same over time predictably and there are things that have obviously changed um the things that have changed i think is that in general over the past what has happened is that uh, there has been this i think fairly significant shift in the way companies uh, at least media outlets in india even the ones that are extremely legacy ones uh, are start looking at digital and online so that used to be this thing where you know previously what would happen is you would have like this one uh, main division which is basically saying oh we are the regular division and you would have this digital division which is basically these two people sitting in one corner in the basement saying that they are part of our web team uh so they basically decide oh which of this are we going to like upload online uh there was never this entire thing that looked at it and said look this is what we have uh and just like go across everything and let's just put that there it doesn't work that way 
so i think that separation between digital and analog in a very broad sense i have i've heard of in multiple outlets over time that has changed i don't think most outlets in india don't do that anymore uh, maybe if someone is still doing it they should probably change uh, i think in general they've started to understand that look this is essentially i hate to use the word content but this is content and this has multiple ways of distribution either you can distribute using print you can distribute using digital you can distribute it ways using um, maybe even audio uh, so different places have learned that uh, for instance there are publications who have figured this out in ways that are quite surprising for legacy publications you wouldn't expect legacy publications to generally be at the forefront of this uh, of course the most obvious international example is the new york times and what they have done like for a long time literally the oldest newspaper slash publication in the world has started to understand that oh this is how digital works and not just this is how digital works they have created a path and innovated at a point where really new age outlets like us uh, look up to that and that's really crazy like we look up to a, like a legacy publication that's like 100 110 years old to basically say oh this is how you do digital this is how you do subscriptions interesting in india also for instance to some extent that has happened in a couple of really small areas so for instance if you look at say what uh, the indian express does with audio that is actually quite uh, remarkable because they have managed to build out uh, a couple of audio podcasts which are fairly good uh, and i think stand to quality that you wouldn't generally expect a legacy media outlet to do so there are some examples in some ways some things have either remained the same or they have directly gone from one medium to another in a very similar way i would like to believe that one thing that i've generally heard of late uh, among multiple large publications in india is that one thing that generally remains the same is that there is still a big separation between the editorial side as well as the business side uh, they don't even talk to each other uh, a journalist recently joined the ken and uh, i was talking to her and she was like astonished because and it was basically like uh, it was a group of like two three journalists just hired like uh, two three people recently and i asked them that in your previous publications how many people from the business side had you met and they were like probably like she said oh i spoke to maybe one person in six months or my nine months over there and i was astonished and she was these these people were talking to us and the entire team as part of their orientation so it was in the first week you have like multiple meetings with multiple people and we were here to basically say yeah this is what we do this is what we are doing and they were like astonished that this was even happening so some of this probably still exists uh, i think it still exists so yeah so it's it's a mixed bag but yeah some things are the same and some things have changed with this shift towards the digital delivery of news we see almost all media platforms putting content behind layered paywalls how do you think it will change the media industry ecosystem which is primarily driven by revenues from advertisements yeah so see okay to to i think see in general we have always known that advertising uh, see advertising has been going through its own ups and downs and its own cycle um even before i joined the ken uh, i used to work at like uh, the i used to work at inno which is one of the world's largest ad tech companies uh, who build ad tech products from scratch right and uh, basically work with like multiple like thousands of publishers on one side thousands of advertisers on the other side um and obviously at some level compete with like the likes of a google or a facebook or a wechat or whoever it is depending on the geography so uh and the thing that if you see over time is that 
the nature of advertising itself has transformed a lot. Um, so even if you look at companies like, say, Inmobi, uh, the companies that they competed with in, say, 2012, 2013, and the companies that they compete with it like 2019, 2020 is like vastly different. Um, and that's because the advertising landscape is like that. It's really one of the most hardest businesses to be in. I mean, there's no denying that it's one of the hardest businesses to be, not just as an ad tech player, but even as somebody who, you know, depends on it. So what typically ends up happening is that over time, if you see, uh, advertising has gone through this point where people have basically looked at it really favorably and said, look, if we have a lot of users who consume our product and we are able to show ads to them, then it stands to reason that we should be able to make a lot of money from this. And this is a premise that everybody has had. This is a premise that multiple independent ad tech products have had and companies have had. This is a premise that publishers have had as well. Now, there are different variants of this and how it has transformed over time. Uh, the most obvious example of someone who basically said, look, this, this entire model can work was BuzzFeed because BuzzFeed essentially came on and said that we will create pieces of content that get distributed through Facebook uh, and these all these other social platforms. And the way we'll monetize ourselves is either through like native advertising or through like sponsored advertising, and that's going to work. And over time, people have probably looked at it and said, well, probably native advertising is maybe slightly overblown. It's not that easy to do. It's not scalable. Uh, so some of those problems still remain. If you look at, say, then after that, there has been this entire shift towards what you call programmatic advertising, which basically is essentially a way of uh, programmatic advertising at the very simple stage is just machines making decisions on what to bid for, what slots to get, what ads to show. So over time, uh, what has happened is that advertising, yes, has remained, uh, I think advertising has still been fairly lucrative for like really large players. If you look at even, I go back to the New York Times, New York Times still has a majority of their uh, revenue coming from advertising, although subscriptions is like growing at such a rapid rate. Uh, over time, I think in general, it's fair to say that everybody has sort of figured out that, okay, we thought that we could make money out of this. We thought that this could be really sustainable. But for the most part, uh, the only set of people who seem to be making a lot of money out of this are the platform players, which is fundamentally just two right now, uh, Google and Facebook. And at some level, you could probably add Amazon in as well. So I think those three players are the only ones who are able to really make money from advertising. Now, if you talk to publishers, yes, the large publishers who have this vast networks and multiple ways of consuming content and properties are probably able to do well. Uh, the most obvious example in India that I can think of is, say, Times Internet. Even Times Internet has multiple problems. Like you have like Ghana on one side, you have like uh, television on the other side, you have like digital on this side. So, um, so probably not television. Times Internet does not have television, but it has yeah, it has Ghana, it has like uh, you know their digital platforms, it has all of these other individual things, and they're probably able to like get this together and try to make monetize out of all of these like some amount of OTT, some this, et cetera. But for mostly the other players, if you go down and ask smaller publications, I think they will all tell you that advertising is just really, really on a decline. And it has been on a decline. It has been consistently on a decline for a long period of time. I think in general, people have not been like um, trying really urgently to break out of it. Um, and I think the worst part is that the pandemic quite sadly has accelerated it. Like one of the things that I think the pandemic has generally done 
it has accelerated a lot of things. Uh, things that were happening that may have happened over like two years are probably happening over like, I don't know, maybe four or five months, depending on the sector. So, and that's true for something like, say, a decline of advertising revenue. Uh, and this is not just true about India, this is true across multiple newsrooms in the US. Um, it's also true for the rise of subscriptions as well. So if you look at, and it's not just about digital publications like uh, the Ken, for instance, but even publications like, say, The Atlantic, which has created like a record number of subscriptions over the last like few months. Uh, if you look at, say, Netflix, Netflix has recorded a record number of uh, new signups and new purchases over the last several months. Even like really strange businesses that you wouldn't expect. Like, for instance, if you look at, say, Peloton, uh, Peloton is a business that just does subscriptions for exercising in your home on a bike. Uh, and when they launched, I think a lot of people were looking at it and saying, well, but how many people will pay for this? Really, we're not sure. Peloton is doing really well, if I'm not wrong. I think they had one of their best quarters just now. So some of these things have accelerated. Um, and yeah, so in general, I still believe that I don't, I, I think it's too soon to essentially say that advertising is dead. I don't, I wouldn't go that far. I think, see, look, companies that basically have sat and figured out and said that, okay, we understand that we have multiple revenue sources. We're going to get it from advertising. We're going to get it from subscription. We're going to get it from events, et cetera. And this is the balance that we are going to walk between all of these. We'll probably like see some kind of success. And that's in a way, that's the formula that the New York Times follows. Uh, but, and one can argue that that is also a different kind, but slightly similar formula that Times Internet follows, which is probably working for them right now. But for the others, yeah, people who have been over-reliant on any one revenue source, and if you're not the biggest, uh, yeah, it, it's not it's not a good time. It's really not a good time. I don't know what's going to happen. It's possibly one thing that may happen is that, yeah, some kind of advertising revenue will come back. Uh, another possible outcome is that, and you're seeing this across the world, there is a certain amount of backlash against uh, Google, Facebook, etc. And there are, this is happening in multiple countries across the world. So, for instance, if you look at, say, what's happening in Australia, uh, which is very interesting, where what's happening in Australia is that uh, there is like the, the Competition Commission of Australia, which is very similar to the CCI in India, is telling Facebook that, look, uh, here's what you need to do to Facebook and Google. Look, because uh, you are actually putting people are sharing links of news and links are and news is being distributed through your platforms. So you actually need to pay the creators for that. So you need to pay news publications for that uh, and you'll have to figure out some kind of a deal. And of course, Facebook is essentially saying that if you do that, then we are going to stop sharing news. So if this goes to a head, then what will probably happen is if you live in Australia and you're using Facebook and you find a news article that you really like and you put it in Facebook and you want to share it, Facebook will say, oh, no, you can't share this. You can share anything else you want, but you can't share news. Um, it's a very strange thing that's happening. Uh, this is also happening in countries like, say, Spain. I think Spain had this thing where they said that, oh, same thing for Google News. They said, look, you have all these news and people are finding it out through Google News and they're going to those websites. So you need to, you're basically exploiting them. You need to pay something. Um, and from Google's and Facebook's standpoint, this is extremely backwards because from their standpoint, they're saying, look, we are sending users to these destinations who would have never gone there anyway. So it's all, I mean, although they're not saying that you have to pay us, what they're saying is that this is money that we didn't take from you. We are sending it stuff to you for free. So yeah, really strange things are happening. Um, we don't know how it's going to turn out, but 
one thing is definitely sure that uh, the acceleration is increasing. That is definite. I mean, there's no, no one, I don't think anybody who's looking at the data is going to deny that. That's definitely happening. Um, and yeah, and news publications in India have to like figure out a way out of this. In many ways, they delayed this problem. So one way how they delayed this problem, if you remember over the last four or five years is they made cuts in their newsroom divisions. So which means that previously you had like a lot of reporters who would go and cover maybe some people in urban areas, some people in these small uh, rural areas, they'll go and into these multiple places and say, oh, we've got this story deep in the heartland and we're reporting and we're talking about it. I think over time people just said that, oh, but that's all fine. But, you know, this uh, story about five reasons why you live in Navi Mumbai and that makes you a better person gets us like 10x the number of clicks and views as that story from the heartland of Bihar. So why do I need this reporter with me? Why don't I just create this? So that this is now a consequence of that. So as a result, because this is happening now, we are losing valuable reporting. Uh, we're using losing valuable information that has to be told and deserves to be told. And we're not getting that. There are some publications who are doing a good job of it. Uh, one publication I really admire and I hope they succeed is News Minute uh, because they are the ones who basically go and tell stories from South India, uh, very local stories that you want to hear. And this destruction of local news is a theme that has been going on in the US for the, like the last four or five years. Like over years, you can see like dozens and dozens and dozens of examples of local news outlets being shut down. This is a very interesting point. With this accelerated shift in the advertising landscape, even traditional media outlets have now started providing subscription-based services similar to early adopters like the Ken and Scroll. But do you think the market is mature enough to sustain this mass adoption from almost all players in the industry? Yeah. So, see, uh, I think, okay, two, three things that people are doing. Yes, so as it is, so, okay, because of this entire destruction of the ad, um, ecosystem and the advertising ecosystem. So typically what ends up happening is that uh, people say, okay, so what do we do now? Okay, let's just put up a paywall. And now that's actually not as simple as you think because two, three things have started to happen because once you put up a paywall, then you're forced to ask yourself the question, why should someone pay to read this? And that is something that I don't think publications have spent time and effort even thinking about that. It's like one of those muscles in your body that if you don't use it for a significant period of time, they start to like, you know, atrophy. So I think for many publications, it is that. So that is why you will find out that you'll have a bunch of publications that put up a paywall and then aren't really sure, okay, but what do we put behind this paywall? Do we put our best stuff? But if we put our best stuff, then how will people find out about it? Because it's behind the paywall. Uh, how, who's going to find, how is this going to get viral? So now they don't know how to do that because you're fundamentally measuring the success of anything based on quote unquote views, right? Which comes back to your question of mass adoption, which I'll come to. So now you are stuck there and saying, okay, so we can't put our best stuff. So if you can't put our best stuff, then what can we put? Okay, let's put this other stuff, which is like, you know, like a little more premium. So we are going to get like really these hardcore fans of us who need like this extra stuff. So this is like the equivalent of what the analogy that I give is that this is like, you know, the people who go and buy the Blu-ray because they say, oh, there is this like three minutes of hidden footage that I want to see. So let's try to put stuff like that in there that uh, somebody else would want to see. Yeah, maybe. But the number of people who are like so much die, then the question is, then what makes a diehard, diehard fan for you? Why would that person even want to see all of this stuff? And then you start thinking, 
how many diehard fans are there of legacy publications anyway plus this entire thing is coinciding with a decline in trust and a greater suspicion towards media outlets so in general people look at this and say okay so if you don't have like really hardcore fans you don't have a very large set of hardcore fans second you're looking at this and saying okay now what do we put behind our paywall and see okay now we put it behind our paywall now how do we make it successful these are all like very different and very difficult leaps of faith it's not that easy to do um you should like for instance uh, for people who are listening to this i really recommend this interview of uh, bill thompson who's the outgoing ceo of the new york times and he talks about what they went through to do this and the amount of pain and angst that went on inside the new york times to make like they were just dragged kicking and screaming into this entire subscription era uh and it it came at a huge uh, amount of cost to the new york times and the new york times did it because the new york times looked at this and said we believe in this we believe in the fact that our product is so valuable that people will pay for it we believe that that means that we are going to build an app that is so beautiful and so interactive and so amazing to use we believe in that we believe that our products and our digital and all of these subscription strategies and everything is so important we believe in that we need to have like a really high talented product engineering developer design team that understands tech so you need that kind of commitment and you need to basically have a set of people around all of that that look at it and say this is all stuff that we're going to invest in and we're going to believe in and we're going to make this happen it's not going to happen if you don't have organizational will it generally does not happen um about the larger point of going um mass market see the, the thing is that i think in general uh, we have always had this fascination that big is good we have always had this fascination that scale is good and scale is good there's definitely some benefits that come from scale but there are a lot of problems with scale as well and one could argue that the bigger you get and the more scale you have the harder it is to try to create you know business models that are really that work for you um for instance i think the thing that i always uh, go back to although this is not something that applies to us is that there are a lot of good things about being a niche product niche is really really nice uh people really underestimate it they think that oh niche is just so small how are you going to make money how are you going to be successful you need to be mass not really you don't need to be mass at all uh for instance the the, the most classic example of this is this uh very famous write up by this guy named kevin kelly who i think used to be the editor of the wired magazine and he wrote this thing uh, very prescient in i think back in 2008 or 2009 um saying that the only thing that you need to be successful as a creator is a thousand true fans which is very interesting because what he says is that look imagine you are a creator and you want to make something valuable if you can get a thousand people to pay you 100 dollars a year that's it you can make a living because thousand people who pay you 100 dollars a year is 100000 dollars a year boom that's it that's all you need to be successful nothing else and he says that that is what the internet does for you what the internet does is if you are able to create something that is valuable you have access to an infinite global audience and out of which you just have to find a thousand people who want it and maybe that could be say it doesn't even have to be something really big like say subscription journalism maybe there is somebody out there who is creating this 
little um, you know YouTube series about the Roman Empire, and there are there are there thousand people in the world who will pay him hundred dollars a year to see videos about the Roman Empire. Sure, <laughs> this guy can make his money, and people do that today. So, and he said this way before things like Kickstarter, Indiegogo, Patreon, all of these things came. And there are uh, ways of looking at this. So, for instance, I think the analogy that I always give between scale and niche is that I always ask, do you want to be sugar or do you want to be that high-end fruit juice? So you can be sugar. There's nothing wrong in being sugar. But remember that sugar is a a commodity. B, it's hardly, it's very difficult to differentiate. And that is exactly what's happening. If you look at something like say News Lao said, they're facing the exact same problem. Number one, they become a commodity. There used to be a time where, uh, and people still do this by the way, and I don't know why they do this. There used to be a time where people used to be really proud if you are in um, the news media on reporting, the being the first to report something, you know? And they put this thing that say that, oh, exclusive, we got it first, breaking, and we, oh, yeah, the, we are the first to report that this company is about to be acquired, or we are the first to report that this particular deal is going to happen. And they still do that. Even on Twitter, if you go, you put those nice alarm bells next to it on their tweets and say, breaking, exclusive. Uh, and even the next day in the newspaper, they say, breaking, we are the first to report that this company was supposed to be acquired by that. And it's very strange because I don't understand why they do that. Because this, this entire mindset makes sense in an era where the internet doesn't exist. So when the internet doesn't exist and the only time you get your news is from newspapers. So in order to be, if you were first at something, you had a, you know, a competitive advantage. Because what would happen is when somebody goes to a newsstand and they see like 10 newspapers, and if you are the first to report something and the other nine have something else on their homepage, on their front page, um, then somebody would likely pick up your newspaper to read that. So now you have a competitive advantage. Now you can say that, okay, now because I'm going first, I'm actually accelerating sales of my newspaper through the day. but Today, being first means nothing. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. Who remembers who was the first person to report that Flipkart was going to get acquired by Walmart? I don't know who was the first person to report, and I'm in the business. Uh, and I don't think that that particular outlet got any advantage from it. Who was the first to report that Geo Platforms was going to get a investment from Google? I don't know. But I bet you that the person who did it, if it was a legacy publication, put all of those tweets out and put those things out in the newspaper saying, exclusive, we are the first to report this, this, this. I don't know. It just seems strange. Uh, but I think going back to my larger point about a thousand true fans, we are seeing this happen today. Uh, for instance, I think another example of uh, someone who's managed to make this work really well is uh, Ben Thompson from Stratagree. So Ben Thompson is this guy who just writes uh, this website called Stratagree, which I think he started in like 2012, 2013, probably somewhere on that time. Um, and he was the successor to the blogging era. So I, until that time, people would write blogs and blogs are like a little bit like what podcasts are today. Similarly, at that point in time, everybody was doing blogs, but nobody was really figuring out a way to monetize it. And Ben Thompson was the first, I wouldn't say first, but one of the first earlier people to essentially look at this and say, look, I have a very unique and I believe valuable perspective on the strategy of business in tech. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to basically make this paid and you pay me $10 a month and you're going to get this into your inbox. Alone, single operation. Does not do any original reporting. Well, not much original reporting. Um, he does a little bit of interviews here and there, but most of the time all he does is just sees the news and says, okay, this is what this means. Um, and sometimes he's fairly perceptive. And 
over time he just like accumulated subscribers after subscribers and uh, we don't know today the exact number of subscribers although like multiple estimates on the internet um, have triangulated it and said that ben thompson has close to like 25000 subscribers and is probably making close to 3 million dollars a year 3 million dollars a year writing about strategy of tech right now it can be done so i, I don't know how many uh, mass publications in india are making 3 million dollars a year quite honestly uh, i don't think it's such a big number so yeah it, it can be done but in essence i think what i'm trying to say is that niche is good you'll be surprised how good niche is it's actually much more lucrative than you think Praveen, following up on the point of regional news, in a recent discussion, News Minute founder Dhanya Rajendran said that consumers are partly to be blamed for the downfall of regional news. What are your views on it, and how can maybe news outlets educate users in this regard? Yeah, so I don't know. I I just start to. I think my views on this have always changed over time. I think um, one one way how I used to tell myself. earlier is that consumers are actually like fairly perceptive and it's the products that are really bad and there is like this big huge crying need for people to basically and if you give people good healthy stuff they'll eat it you know uh, i'm not so sure if that's true uh, i think over time my views have changed to a point where i said that look probably a large percentage of people want unhealthy stuff and they crave unhealthy stuff and there's nothing you can do about it uh but look all you can do is this i think the my my understanding and evolution has reached this point where i said look it's hard to look at consumers as a one unified monolithic bunch uh there are going to be people who will only want to watch tv news and find out you know who is being arrested by cbi ed for whose suicide i think there are some people who would want that and crave for that they want to they crave for the yelling and the screaming and the debates the people who want, i think a large set of people want that and that's that's what they live on but i also think there's going to be and there is right now actually a significant set of people who say look we don't want this and if you just give us a better product we will take it uh, just tell us where it is and i think in general that is true uh for instance if you, and that's and and this not you don't have to just look at journalism for this there are like historical precedents for this if you look at say the rise of something like say hbo hbo in the us is available only by cable it's available only through subscriptions and it has been that way for a long time and they essentially said essentially the same thing and when you look at say the rise of netflix it was also exactly the same thing when what did netflix do netflix fundamentally broke the back of network and cable tv netflix essentially went and said that we are going to give you something at a much better quality at a price that is persuasive and you can just see it whenever you want it in whichever device that you would like and that and you'd be surprised how many people want that and if you gives people something that is truly valuable truly quality at a reasonable price at very high quality they'll pay and that is essentially what netflix has taught us and it has said that it's possible um so i think it's it's possible it really is you just i think the hard part is finding them uh one of the biggest things that we find at the ken after people subscribe is we get these emails that happen within like and we always know it's coming within like a week or so of uh subscriptions you get like uh, a 
a set of emails from subscribers saying i did not even know you existed and how did i not know about you until now and i didn't realize that this was there so i think for a lot of people it's that uh, but yeah but but i but i do agree with danya to the point that local news is much harder uh, than business news because it's one of those things that is much harder to monetize but yeah but but i hope hope people figure it out local news is really really important and yeah you should support news bullet if you do, if you if you are listening to this praveen the ken which is a subscription based news platform has seen exceptional growth since its inception can we identify any triggers for this growth and if we can how have they played out in the larger context of the subscription based models okay so all right so okay the the thing that i always talk about growth in subscription is essentially this which is that there are going to be like i think three four things that i would like to believe that has probably worked for us and i and it's a work in progress so some of these things are things that we have obviously learned over time some of these things are mistakes that we made um i suspect we are still making mistakes and we learn from them in the future so but i think broadly there are like three four things that i have seen internally that has worked for us that has helped us with growth i think see number one is it it comes down to your team in itself and about their motivation so i think we've generally been very fortunate that a big chunk of our reporters and staff writers both in india and in southeast asia especially are fundamentally extremely motivated so we tend to hire people who basically come in and say look i want to be a better journalist and i am tired of being a bad journalist and writing all of these things that is coming either through a press release or somebody my boss calling and saying hey i want 300 words on this company is in talks to invest money in this company so i don't want to do that anymore i want to write really meaningful hard hitting journalism and i think it starts there so once you have that and we 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 generally try to get those kind of people and whenever people come in and say i'm really motivated and i want to make a difference it makes a big 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 difference and that happens uh, on the editorial side it also happens on the product side on the engineering side on the marketing side where everybody comes in and says look i believe that i want to do great meaningful strong work that makes a difference that is the first part you need that this is not going to work if i suspect like in many publications what happens is people just come in and they're like okay i'm i'm going to have i'm going to be just finish my two three reports 200 word reports 300 word reports and then i'm going to go home doesn't work for us i don't think i think a strong motivation and ambition is like a huge prerequisite um, and i think we've been fortunate to see a lot of people who do that the second thing is we've been very fortunate that from the beginning we have always viewed journalism as a product and that is something that is it's very that's a very difficult it seems like a very obvious thing but you'll be surprised how elusive that is for a lot of people they don't see it that way so what is product thinking mean product thinking essentially means that you say that look this is something that a is extremely valuable b it means that we are going to try out a bunch of things some of these are experiments some of these are things that may work some of these are things that may not work uh, and the ones that work we are going to iterate and figure out what works and we are going to double down on it and the ones that don't work we are going to kill it and we are going to figure out something else and this is true we have done this um, we have killed editorial products we have killed uh, front end products because they've just not been working and we have also found ways to experiment and do things that has sort of worked and managed to like taste some amount of success into it um 
The third thing is, of course, organization. Your organization has to be in a place that allows you and gives you that freedom to do these things. And you'll be surprised how many hierarchies there are in organizations. Sometimes journalists come to the Ken when they join the Ken, they start calling people sir. And I never understood why until I found out that, oh my God, this is what happens inside traditional publications. So they don't, the levels of hierarchy and the way how you cannot just walk up to somebody and say, look, this is an idea that I have. Let's just do this. It doesn't work that way. Um, and I always give this example of how how things have happened at the Ken, for instance, and I can speak from it personally. Uh, we write this newsletter that goes out every Saturday. It's called the Nutcraft. Uh, it's basically a newsletter that talks about, look, something significant that happened over the previous week. Uh, most of the time I write it or sometimes my CEO Rowan writes it as well. Uh, sometimes we have a couple of other people from the Ken who contribute. The way the newsletter happened was just over a five-minute conversation. It was just me going to Seema, our editor, and saying, at that time, we had another product that was called the Ken on Weekends, which didn't work. And we said, okay, let's get, get rid of it. So that used to come out every Saturday. So we said, okay, look, we have the Saturday slot open. And then I went to Seema and said, look, we should do a newsletter. And Seema was like, okay, what, what do you want to do? I said, look, it has to be this. I didn't even have a name for it. I said, it has to be something looking at the week and all that. We are not, we need to be a little bit newsy. I think it's like a little bit recent, et cetera. And she's like, yeah, okay, fine, do it. I said, that's it, that's it, we're done. So that's how it began. And over like three, four weeks, we didn't have a name for that newsletter. We basically did a subscriber survey and said, okay, what do you think this thing should be? And people came, wrote back and said, oh, we think it should be like this, it should be like that. We're like, okay. Then we continued. And over time, we learned from it. And then we understood, ah, this is how it works. So when you have to, you can't really say and make this thing that, oh, we are like a startup. A lot of people say we are like a startup. No, you have to be a startup. It's, it's very different to say we are like a startup. So organization is another really, really important thing. Um, I think for a lot of people inside media organizations, they don't, they can't just do what they want to do. If they have like, they may be bursting with ideas. There are a lot of people around you who are basically going to make sure those ideas don't come to light. So yeah, so I think with these fundamentals, if you have, then you are able to ask really important questions. So for instance, the most fundamental problem is of growth, um, at least from a business standpoint is essentially this. You can write the most valuable stuff in the world and you can put them behind a paywall. And a lot of publications make this mistake. They think that, oh, I'm going to write this thing. It's really magnificent. It's really valuable. And I'm going to put behind a paywall. I'm going to wait for everybody to come. doesn't work that way. So, and that's also because, and then they wonder, why has nobody come to see my amazing thing that I've written and put behind a paywall? And that's because your traditional levers of growth don't really exist or work really well in a subscription product. So for instance, one of the things... So for instance, what are the four levers of growth? The four levers of growth in any publication are, oh, people are going to come to you, say, direct, which means that they land on your website or land on the story. Now, how do they land there? Somebody has recommended it to them or somebody has sent them something on WhatsApp or something like that. The second way is email. You send them an email and they see that email and say, this is interesting, I'm going to come to you. Now, your email obviously works only if you have an existing base, right? Direct works if somebody, you need word of mouth to make that happen. Three is search. Now, search doesn't work if you're a paywall publication. So Google is not going to index you because Google can't see your content. Of course, they're doing some things now to work around that, but they traditionally can't. So you could search for, say, I don't know, uh, like, for instance, the Ken's coverage on COVID-19 and the pandemic and vaccines is probably, I would, in my opinion, I'm unbiased here, of course, is, is probably the best in India. But if you search for coverage COVID-19 pandemic vaccines, I don't think the Ken would come in the first 10 pages, right? So now what are you going to do? Then the fourth thing is, of course, you say a referral where, okay, other sites are going to send me traffic, maybe through social or something like that. That also doesn't work because 
if you sh- nobody's going to share your articles on social because even if they do and anyone clicks on it they're going to hit a paywall and say i'm not going to read this leave it so now you're stuck with this position where okay i've written something really wonderful now how do i make this work and that requires all of those things that i said earlier you need like a strong motivated team you need product thinking you need organization then you're able to make it work but fundamentally that's how it works while building a business model we talk a lot about bundling and unbundling of services which services should be paid for and which services should be provided for free for example the weekly and daily newsletters from the ken which were free earlier are now behind a paywall we are also seeing mainstream news outlets like times of india and the hindu going behind paywalls with their online newspapers with business models for media companies changing how can one figure out what is working and what isn't is it purely a game based on financials and the number of subscribers or does one need to look deeper yeah so so the thing about bundling and unbundling i mean first i'm i'm going to tell you this very upfront that i don't think we have a clear answer to it when i say we i don't think even at the can including me we don't have a very clear answer to this we have a few hypotheses um some of these hypotheses are coming through and when they start to come through we start to double down on them uh, sometimes they don't and we we say okay let's abandon this and try out something else so uh, i think nobody has really figured this out and i think there's a very famous quote right that all business is fundamentally bundling and unbundling in different cycles uh, which means that businesses go through this phase where they bundle 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 and then they after a while they're like oh let's unbundle 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 so in in so i don't think it's just for publications for everybody else as well look our thing is essentially this we always look at products it always comes back to product thinking we are very we generally try to be clear when we do something what we intend to achieve from it and we say okay look we want to do this uh, we expect we would achieve this as a result of this and if for some reason those assumptions don't pan out we try different things um, for instance if you look at say newsletters newsletters are general what is the general prevailing assumption the general prevailing assumption is that look i'm going to have a newsletter and i'm going to put this newsletter out there and i'm going to make sure that it's a valuable product and what's going to happen is if that happens enough people will read it they'll give me their email address then i'll build a referral program on top of it and people will refer other people and i'll get more users and over time i have lots of users and when i have lots of users for a newsletter i can show them ads or i can sell them merchandise or i can ask them to upgrade to a paid product now there's nothing wrong with this assumption it's in fact one could argue that it is worked so if you look at someone like say newsletters like say skim or newsletters like say morning brew or, or the hustle they have all built themselves on top of these assumptions saying that we are going to build something it's really valuable it's completely free you can sign up and at the end of it i think the skim shows ads i think others also show ads but i believe morning brew and uh, hustle have also tried to create paid products and said okay look i'm going to channel some of my millions of subscribers up there um which is possible so if you look at someone like say finshots in india they're also trying i mean they haven't gotten that far yet but they've also basically tried to create a product that is free and you know we get there um i don't know for us i think see there were two three things one was uh we were basically see it should also very it's also very important to remember the context in which our newsletters were built uh our newsletters were not built as a deliberate uh th- strategy where we said okay look guys we need to do something let's create newsletters let's sit in front of a whiteboard and say what are the type two or three types of newsletters we can create let everybody chime in doesn't work that way so what we did was we said look uh, i've already said how the nutcraft evolved which was essentially this it started almost as a whim and said okay let's see what happens with this 
And over time, we found out what happened. We saw the response from subscribers. We saw what was happening. And even in the very beginning, in the first or second week or so, I sent out a survey to subscribers. And in that, I had put a question that said, will you pay for this if it becomes paid? And we got like some interesting responses there as well. So we knew at some level, look, if we hit product market fit, or if we come close to it, then maybe there is something we can do with this. Um, and that's true about even the other newsletter that we launched. Beyond the First Order was launched as a very clear response. So what happened was the pandemic hit and the Ken typically has never really followed the news cycle very closely because we've always said that if something happens, uh, we are okay. We are not really interested in going immediately the next day saying, oh, this is, the, this is what it means, et cetera. We are perfectly okay going one week later, but writing the definitive story about it. Uh, now that changed when the pandemic hit because in the first few couple of weeks when the pandemic hit, uh, we were publishing stories and subscribers were writing in and saying, why are you telling me about this thing about what's happening here when the whole world is on fire right now? And we were like, oh yeah, that's true actually. And the pandemic was changing things so rapidly that we figured that, look, if we continue to tell stories the way we do, there is value in it, but there is also now space for a product that says, look, here is the long-term motivations, consequences of what's happening about the pandemic. And that's how Beyond the First Order was born. And we just said, and in fact, even if you see Beyond the First Order, it has evolved over time. In the beginning, it used to be uh, completely, uh, very closely aligned with systems thinking. Now, we don't go so so deep into that. Once in a while, we do it, but we don't go so deep into it. Uh, then after that, we said, okay, look, it's not just systems thinking, and now we can go into something else. Then we said, but isn't it Asia? It's not just India, because fundamentally, the pandemic is hitting India, and it's hitting Indonesia, and it's hitting Thailand, and all of these places. And our colleagues that were saying, look, similar things are happening here as well. So we said, okay, these things are all connected. Let's talk about this. And we did. And over time, we saw the response. And we saw what subscribers wrote in and told us. We saw what was happening. We look at data very closely. Uh, not just data, both qualitative and quantitative. And then we said, okay, now we know and we are confident what we can do with it. And so, yeah, we did that. So, yeah, to answer your question, no, it's not necessarily financial. Sometimes it's strategic. Uh, sometimes it's a question of exercising muscles that have already been built over time. We know how to make paid products work. How do you make something free, viral to get thousands and millions of users? Uh, we can, but I guess we were just more comfortable saying, look, we have figured this part out and we are going to like go down that path. But you know, these things could change. For instance, the Ken is launching a podcast very soon and the podcast is going to be free, but there's nothing stopping us. And we're only thinking of ways of, you know, can we do a paid podcast? How does that work? And there are precedents and models for this. If you look at even, like I spoke about Ben Thompson earlier for Strategy. He has a podcast called Dithering with John Gruber of Daring Firewall. And it's a podcast that's basically just, it's three three days a week, just 15 minutes, two people talking about something that happened in tech. And they have, they've charged, I think like $5 a month for it. They have 10,000 subscribers, man. Which podcast has 10,000 paid subscribers for that? Now you calculate and see how much revenue you can make out of it. So yeah, a lot of these old assumptions are changing and we'll figure it out as it comes through. Praveen, another trend we see today is that of changing methods of content delivery. Similar to the rise of podcasts a few years ago, today we are seeing the rise of paid newsletters coming not just from established media houses, but more so from individual writers. Do you think this is stemming from a divide between writers and publishing houses or does this issue have a deeper significance? Oh, that, that's actually a very, very good question. Uh, yes, I think 
it's two, three things. Okay, one is definitely what you said, which is that, yes, there is definitely a divide between individual writers and publishing houses. The most famous example of this is probably something that you know about, which is, who is Andrew Sullivan, who used to write for, I think it was the New York Magazine. Um, and I think very recently said, look, I'm, I'm not writing for this anymore. Uh, and for very ideological reasons, if I'm not wrong, and then started his own paid Substack. And he was a blogger who went to a publication and then came back and said, no, I'm now it's going to be paid. So yeah, that is definitely one part of it. I think the second part is, of course, this entire thing of people are just, I mean, to be quite honest about it, is that a lot of people are very tragically losing jobs in media. So now when you don't have a job and you're like by yourself, you basically look at it and say, okay, now what do I do? And what can I do? And then you think, okay, look, I really think I have something valuable to contribute. So I'm going to put this up and I'm going to use Substack for this and I'm going to charge people. And if I can find thousand people, then I can make a living. So it's all going back to the thousand true fans by Kevin Kelly. So part of it is that as well. Um, but yeah, but I think a large part is also that previously it used to be a little harder to do this. Like you needed like to know some amount of coding, you need to do some amount of some kind of this thing. And I think Substack as a platform allows you to do that. And it's not just Substack, even in India. I think there is another thing called Scrollstack. Scroll started something called Scrollstack, which does something very similar, where if you're a creator, you just write. So you can just put it there and just charge something and make money off it. I don't know. I, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, in a way, it's good, I guess. It's always nice to see people do things individually. Um, but there are a lot of benefits of being in an organization. And that's something that I have personally faced as well because I write a paid newsletter. So there are like a ton of benefits. So for instance, I have, I leverage very heavily the vast experience of my editorial team. Uh, they understand uh, things about storytelling and narratives and what works, what doesn't work much better than I do. Uh, every every week when I write the Nutgraph, I finish the Nutgraph, I start the Nutgraph at like what, 5 p.m. And I send it at like 10, 10.30 p.m. to desk and i have a copy desk that's waiting for me on friday night for that and they get it and the most nerve-wracking hour of my entire week is that one hour when desk is editing that and they edit it and they come back and give me feedback so i know what that what they're saying and if if my desk team essentially says this is good then i'm relieved and say okay so then it's good but if they don't say anything then i know that okay it's not as good uh, and i see the edits that they make i see that what they do so those things and all I'm not sure individual writers get that. And in general, I think people vastly estimate and they think that everything that they write is really valuable. That's not really true. You can take most of uh, people who are writing these sub stacks that are still popular, but you can you can chop it down by 50% and make it much better, quite frankly. Now, I'm not saying make it easier. I'm saying make it better. Um, and people vastly underestimate advantages that you get like that in your part of a publication. Following up on the previous question, do you think this reducing dependence of individual writers on media houses actually poses a threat to digital players like the Ken Scroll and Inc. 42? Do you think platforms like Substack can bank on individual writers, driving mutual growth, and become a major competitor to established players? Yeah, so that is, it's interesting. So there are, there, Substack is doing some things in that direction. So for instance, I think very recently they set up a legal fund saying that, look, if you are a writer and you're writing on Substack and somebody is trying to sue you and we think that it's unreasonable, we will fund your defense, you know, which is actually something that publications give you. They give you that umbrella and that air cover to write something. And if, you know, you end up getting sued, the publication essentially goes and says, 
takes the hit for you and fights for you on behalf of you, stands by your reporting, etc. I don't know how many people do that today, but they do that. So Substack essentially is trying to follow some of that model where they say, look, we are trying to build some of those, you know, safeguards and those things that you traditionally lean on to in media organizations. We are trying to give you some of those as well. I suspect they will get into things like providing copy desk and things like that as a service, you know, so you, you'll probably go there as well. I don't know. See, the thing about subst- and but Substack is essentially going to face this one question, which is not entirely clear, which is that at what point, and you asked me about bundling and unbundling, and I suspect Substack is going to face the same problem, which is that at what point do you basically say, do I bundle or do I unbundle? You know, right now, Substack is completely unbundled. You basically, every individual writer can make, you know, $5 a month or $10 a month, whatever that number is, through their own set of core subscribers. At some point in time, you will have users telling Substack, look, I can, an average user to Substack can say, look, I can only subscribe to like one or two of these newsletters. I'm not going to pay you like three, four of them. But on the other hand, if you have this plan for like $10 a month or $15 a month for like as many newsletters as you like, and I can eat everything, then maybe I might pay you. And Substack may start to get tempted to go in that direction. Now, again, that's a slightly different model. Um, The only model that comes close to this in my mind is what Masterclass does. Masterclass essentially does this. You pay a platform fee. And after you pay the platform, you can take a masterclass in anything. Like Aaron Sorkin can teach you screenwriting. Malcolm Gladwell can teach you something else. And Natalie Portman can teach you acting. And of course, they have paid Natalie Portman and this thing and all of these people individually. So will Substack go down there? Then they have to pay each of these writers individually. But then that goes closer to a medium kind of a model. So yeah, it's it's tricky. It's really tricky. Uh, <laughs> it's like right now, Substack is eating medium's lunch. Uh, it's very hard to basically imagine a situation where Substack says, okay, the way out is to go back to a medium model. I don't know, uh, but it'll definitely be interesting to see how it plays out. I don't think they can fundamentally challenge established organizations, news organizations, although I might be completely wrong. It's very early to say, but I don't see Substack challenging someone like, say, a New York Times or challenging someone like a Financial Times or even in India or challenging like an Economic Times. I don't see that happening unless they vastly change over time. But yeah, maybe, who knows? We have, I mean, history is littered with examples of uh, large incumbents vastly underestimating small underdogs, especially in technology and media. So yeah, let's see. We'll have to wait and see. The general notion of media has been purely focused on content and presentation of that content to consumers in the most effective manner. Other aspects of the business were mostly sidelined or left to be looked after by siloed departments. While the entertainment industry players like Netflix have been successfully able to integrate content and business under one roof, why do you think the same has not been achieved in the news industry? Oh, the answer to that is really simple. It all comes down to, I think this is something that uh, my boss Rohan always says, it all comes down to incentives. Uh, And it's fundamentally that. Because, see, we generally think in terms of incentives a lot at the can. Uh, I think it's probably a muscle that we exercise when we write our newsletters, we write our stories, etc. And I think it comes down to that. What was the incentive for any legacy news organization in India to look at this and say, okay, you know what? We need product thinking in this organization. We need to integrate our editorial and our product and our design and our engineering and our developers in a very, very amazing way to basically create great stuff with the future. There was no incentive. None of them cared. And I think none of them cared simply because many of them were, A, either extremely happy with however they were being funded, 
or they were looking at this and saying oh this decline and all this this is going to happen in the west it's not going to happen in india or oh this is going to take its time i'm going to figure this out later so fundamentally it was only that it was only incentives there was no other reason if the incentive existed they would have done it uh, but did it and partly incentives partly to do with the fact that i think they believed that look advertising is going to be this holding grail that will probably like save them and my general view is that you essentially had a lot of organizations who have been in something that is extremely static for decades the news of industry for all purposes has not changed much if if you go to a, if you go to a newsroom in like 1965 in india and you went to a newsroom in like i don't know 90 94 95 i don't think there's much difference you know it's the same kind of thinking it's the same kind of edit calls the same kind of thing so generally you have a sense of complacency you have a sense of atrophy you have a sense of okay everything is going to be fine everything changes so slowly and suddenly you ended up in a place where the world changed rapidly and it's and, and this is before the pandemic i'm not even talking about the pandemic i'm talking about how the internet came then immediately just as you sort of figured out the internet mobile came just as you figured out mobile then advertising came then you were like oh banner ads no 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 it's native ads no oh, it's not native ads no okay it's something else don't pandemic so i mean that's true for any company right praveen as a final question how do you think the media industry as a whole will evolve over the years and how will the interaction of media with business government and society change in the future so the standard i think is a very cynical time to be in media it's a very cynical time if you're in media it's a very cynical time if you're outside media and looking at media everyone is cynical about media today so uh, even the people inside media so it's uh, people are also cynical about government and so that's a different thing but leave that so see in general it's this i think see two three things have happened one is that i think media has for a long time taken its place for granted you know and i and i wish i could say it differently but that's the honest truth i mean that's my perspective so the thing that i tell people in general is that there is there is only one industry in the world apart from the media industry where the people involved in creating the product actively dislike and stay away from the business side of that product there's only one industry other than journalism and that is art so for a long time business sorry media has basically been art and people who have been creating media especially from a journalism standpoint or the writing standpoint have viewed themselves as artists i'm going to write this and it could be either a video documentary or it could be this news report or it could be this long form article and that's it and i'm going to go home and i'm going to bask in the appreciation of people who give that to me and i'm going to actively hate and stay away and even look down upon the monetary and the business aspects of it that has been the prevailing thing for a long time people may deny it but it's true and there is there are consequences to that kind of an approach because fundamentally then at a certain point in time look the media is going through three things that have happened all simultaneously and this has never happened before generally they have dealt with like one or two crises right now they are dealing with three crises number one crisis is a crisis of business model which is essentially they finally come to a point where they realize that oh the the way that we have been making money so far is not going to work oh it's going to work. okay we have to do something else now the second crisis is that of distribution until now you had print so which, what did print do print fundamentally said that i can publish this and i own my channel to my users which means that 
I'm going to publish this. I'm going to put it on papers, and people are going to read these papers. And my power comes from that. Hence, people want to talk to me. Hence, people want to spend time with me. Hence, people are really worried about what I think. So, why do you think politicians and everyone else, at least traditionally, were very worried whenever, like, there was times of, you know, when there was times of emergency and times of this thing, they were very worried about what the media was doing. You had to really lock down the media to make that because they are the ones who can amplify whatever they want. So, you really like go after it. Now that is gone. That's gone away. No one cares. There is. your news media website is one out of the million websites on the internet and people can choose what they want to choose they don't like so you don't have that power anymore that's the second crisis your distribution has changed completely you have come from this place where this world where you had this megaphone and only people and you were the only ones who had that megaphone to now everyone around you having megaphone and there is this noise everywhere and now you have to think oh now if everyone has a megaphone what do i say to cut through this that's true and the third thing which is probably connected to two is a decline in trust so it means that people are now looking at this and saying okay you don't have a business model okay you are one out of several so now why do i trust you i don't trust you anymore right and this is true you can do all the right things and people will basically make sure that there are ways they don't trust you now this is a really hard problem you never had all three together sometimes you can say oh business model has been tricky sometimes you can say oh other competitors came sometimes you can say oh internet came now you have all three now what do you do so it's a it's what i call a multi front war Uh, it's not easy. I, I'm just going to say it. It's not easy. I, I I don't mean to be pessimistic, and I don't want to end on a pessimistic note. But it's it's going to be a very difficult time ahead. I think we are going to go through a time where a lot of things are going to get upended. Um, a lot of pe- things that we thought traditionally were heroes and things that had a lot of power and influence, etc., are going to change. It's going to happen. Um. this upheaval is in in a way it's going on um it's probably accelerating sometimes sometimes it's decelerating but it's going to happen and yeah i hope at least personally speaking and for the sake of awareness i really want the more the number of media outlets out there that have trust successful business models and very clear you know understanding of its products and users and thinking about their users rather than thinking about advertisers i think that's going to be like it's going to be really valuable for us it's going to be very valuable for all of us uh, so yeah i hope it happens i genuinely do thank you pravin for your time this was a very interesting and thought provoking discussion it was a pleasure to have you here with us thank you so much for having me i really appreciate you having me and i really enjoyed myself so that's it from the imb podcast today we hope you enjoyed listening to it do send in your comments feedback and suggestions and we will be happy to read them Have a great day.